Good morning. morning. Hey, Jen, how are you? Well, let's see. Sometimes I feel like I'm in in awe. Oh my! I I have to say that I do hate the word awesome. I find yeah. myself using it, and it just seems like such a cliche these days. Well, most of the times that word awesome is used, it's applied to something that is less than awesome. Right. I think you really should reserve awesome for things that are special or something. You know, and, you know, when you say that, Dan, that sounds like a very rational way of thinking about it. Indeed. And this is the second book that you and I have read for the bookcase, Rationality, What It Is and Why It Matters by Steven Pinker. And then In Awe, which is uh, Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder to Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy by John O'Leary. Whenever Pinker speaks, whether it is a podcast or a TED Talk or a paper or a book he's written, traditionally I've been quite interested in what he has to say. I think it was, what was it, 10, 15 years ago when he pointed out that actually these are the best of times we're living in. You hear this constant griping about government and about life, and we are the richest, most healthy, and happiest uh, we have been in, in human history, really. Yeah, it is remarkable. I'm struck by the, the actual, the charisma of both of these authors. Pinker has his opus of books and the Harvard professor of psychology. And when he speaks, I've listened to lots of content and watched lots of videos with him. And he is so present and has such an encyclopedic grasp of his subject. I mean, it, it really is quite remarkable. And so his charisma can kind of carry a difficult book like this. And then you have this fella who, I uh, guess I can maybe spill the beans about him, but he, when he was nine years old, he uh, suffered a burn accident where he was burned over, I guess they said, I wanna say over, over 100% of his body. Yeah. He tells his story and a number of other stories and you want to be him. I mean, he just has such a, a font of positive takes and reframes on things. So the, the point is that the charisma of these guys kind of carries their books. And at the same time, they maybe occupy sort of these opposite poles that make you hungry for some common ground or middle ground. I think that's a really apt way of talking about and describing the two books. As the title implies, this is all about using your brain and reasoning through issues and concerns in order to be successful in life, both individually and as a, as a culture. This is the antidote to when reason squelches joy and reality squelches joy, his stories really capture you. And I just have to think about memories of my two boys when they were young and were fascinated by a ladybug 
crawling on a leaf that the two of us could sit and watch this for 10, 15, 20 minutes and the questions that would come from this that I had no answer to and that were really missing the point anyway, they were completely absorbed and in awe of the world around them. And then over time that sort of slowly dissipates and we become stuck in our way of seeing the world perhaps and aren't as awestruck by it. Yeah. And so I, as I was reading these books, because I am who I am, as I read almost every book I read, I wonder about the application to the field of mental health, behavioral health, addiction, like what lessons can we take away from, from the books? Hmm. A study that came out, it must be close to a year ago that's really stuck in my mind. They ask clients who had dropped out of treatment why they had dropped out. And in addition to all the common reasons we know about, they added a third, which I'd not thought about before, but I had experienced many times. And that is the clients said that they knew what they needed to do next, what steps they had to take. And it was clear to them that the therapist knew what steps needed to be taken, but neither of them could get the client to take the steps. This is what led to dropout, the sort of capitulation. We just give up in some way. And that's where the book In Awe, I think, has some value. It really is about reconnecting with that childlike sense of wonder for people who are in difficult circumstances. And I would say that in many instances of the people I've worked with over the years, that's a crucial, critical first step before people are in awe of the possibilities. Change is really difficult. Yeah, I was struck by, I guess you'd call it a chapter in this book on hope, because I've heard you talk many times about the heart and soul of the original heart and soul of change and the chapter that's written by C.R. Snyder. Very good chapter. And it is. And he gives a little precy of that chapter, the pathways thinking and the agency thinking that's classic Snyder. And as I was reading that chapter, I was wondering about the rationality of hope. And if you're just playing the percentages, say with even like addiction, you don't have a great chance of being successful, at least maybe your first time in treatment. Hmm. Is it rational to have hope when your <laughs> chances aren't very good? Yeah. So that is so interesting, Dan, that you would bring that up because I understand the position taken by Pinker in the book. I like it. It was the reason I went to college. My parents told me that the reason you go to college, at least the first four years, was to learn how to think and to think clearly. So you're making good decisions, et cetera. But I don't believe a word in it, in the sense that this is what's going to save us, given what you've just said. Many of the things that bind us together as a species and that move us forward, it seems to me, have very little to do with rational decision-making. 
I think that Pinker would disagree with you, of course, because he's making an argument for rationality. And I think he would say that if you look at different measures like life expectancy or people in poverty or people killed by wars, that things are much, much, much better and that it is, in essence, rationality that has led to that. I think he would also admit that correlation does not always imply causation. I agree with you that there is something missing there. There's not necessarily a direct line that connects rationality to these things. Let me give you an example of what I mean. And this is from the guy who developed what I think is perhaps an ultra-rational approach to conducting psychological care. Feedback-informed treatment really is about doing much of what Pinker, I think, values. For example, yeah. understanding the base rates, looking at impact, making small adjustments, running small randomized trials between a therapist and a client and seeing what works and what doesn't work and sticking with what does. One trend I've noticed, for example, on social media is that statements about, say, the Dunning-Kruger effect, thinking that you are an expert in an area more than you actually are and overestimating your knowledge and ability. What's amazing about that is if we, in the U.S., divide it into two sides, both sides use that term to describe the other side. So to me, it seems that the, the call for rationality is not likely to lead to rational behavior because at our core, humans are not. And much of human behavior is not guided. This is something deeply human. And rather, the circumstances need to be organized in a way that lead to the ends that Stephen Pinker attributes to the rise in rationale. I think it's a bit of hubris to assume that all the progress of the last centuries is due to the rise of rationality. Right. And I hope I can say it the right way, but people ask him about progress. And he's very clear to say, basically, the universe does not care that we make progress. The system doesn't work that way. I think he does believe that rationality is the way forward, but the, the universe doesn't really care whether humanity survives or not. Hmm. Again, I think that we can think of regimes that have been ultra-rational and deeply inhumane. And until rationality confronts this irrational side that's based on values and identity, I'm skeptical that this, which I deeply value, is likely to assume a central position or to live up to its, its promise. So I'm thinking about practical tips that you might take away from both of these books. And I do think 
that even though it's daunting, we haven't really talked about what is in here. Do that, Dan. Okay. So he spends probably the first at least half and probably even more of this book talking about different types of fallacies that human beings, I guess I would say, suffer from. So things like the sunk cost fallacies, things like ignoring base rates, things like the gambler's fallacy, future discounting, stuff like that. This is, these are common errors of judgment that we make. And I will say that, that a lot of that stuff is actually quite difficult. It's in essence confronting your own biases in a very kind of academic way that is, I found quite difficult to get through, but I also feel like there was a payoff because in, in the end, he does come around to talking about how rationality really does have benefits. So I won't disagree that rationality can be a good thing. But I don't see much evidence of it working in the main, even for people who have extended educations. To go to one of your examples, which is the sunken cost example, perfect one for that for me was first told in this little book called Rational Choice in an Uncertain World by one of my heroes, Robin Dawes. In there, he tells the example, if you go to a movie, you're sitting in the theater and the movie's not very good. And you think to yourself, well, I'm going to stay because I paid for it. Dawes would say how deeply irrational that is. And I get that up here. It is irrational because now you're in essence paying to stay in a bad movie. But more often than not, even knowing the fallacy doesn't change my behavior much. Right. So even when we can see things from a more rational perspective, making a change is still difficult. And one of the things I really appreciated on that note in Pinker's book was that many of the studies that have been used to say, look at kind of how silly humans are, that they can't figure out these these choices and that they're making it is he said a lot of that is in the framing of the questions if you frame these questions in much more practical ways people tend to make better choices and i think this is my point if what we're relying on is for us to look at the universe or the in our world and make rational choices because we've been taught these 12 fallacies of reasoning i have no hope for that at all none I think that this has to be done in the in how we frame these questions and the system around us that guides our choices. So can I push back a little bit? Yeah. You and I certainly know how difficult it is for people to change, right? I mean, people with, with mental health and addiction problems, the statistics aren't very good. Yeah. With feedback-informed treatment, we can incrementally move the needle yeah but ju just because it's difficult to to change an irrationality doesn't mean that it's not useful 
And so that, I guess, leads to the question, who's this book written for? Because once again, we both experienced this as kind of a slog. For me, in part because the first part of it seemed like a repetition of ideas that are coming out in lots and lots of books. Then just the concepts are hard to apply in, in your life. So who's going to be reading this book? Why would somebody read a book like this? I guess I wonder of, of all the, the eight other book reviews that we've done, who's listening to that and who's actually picking up some of the books? Because <laughs> it, for me, regardless of whether I'm in 100% agreement or not, this book gets you thinking. Yeah, right? that's true. I mean, it, and it. If you it, can stick it, with it. If you can stick with it, which is not an easy thing to do. It definitely gets you thinking. So Dan, maybe, would it be the case then that instead of giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down about Pinker's book, that maybe a more useful way to think about this is how to read this book? Yes. I guess I would suggest if anybody is interested in reading it, and I do think it's a valuable book for sure, mm. but that you should listen to some of the, there's some 30 minute podcasts on the BBC. It's called Think with Pinker. And if that kind of stuff interests you, then pick it up. Mm. If, if it doesn't, it's a sunk cost thing. And he even says this in here is that he always thought that if he started a book, he would have he has to finish it. You don't have to finish this book if it's not speaking to you. So I would say that in addition to all the things you've the both of the important things you've recommended here, that this is not a book to be read cover to cover in a week. Parts of it frustrated me. And for the first third of it, it angered me because I thought it was just a repeat of a lot of crap that had been said many times before. And it didn't get us over this hump, this hump that I've been preoccupied with about I weaponize these kinds of ideas and point at others. But if you take it over a month, read a bit, ponder it, listen to the podcast, which I think is a really excellent suggestion, then it starts to broaden out and engage others in this conversation. Now, by contrast, this is a book you could sit down and read in one sitting, really. There aren't any real difficult topics in here. Some of the steps he outlines, I think, are worth paying attention to. And here again, thinking in an extended fashion about each of the concepts, he poses five kinds of questions to help you recover that childlike sense of wonder and awe. And maybe it's reasonable to read a chapter and think about how this would be applied in your life because the stories are very, they fill the room, these stories. And you might find it more difficult to see your spot if you've lived what many would call, say, a privileged life. I think I've, I think I've done that. I've certainly had my traumatic experiences, but I didn't light myself on fire at the age of nine and as a result, lose all my fingers on my hands right. and learn, have to learn how to write again. Now, part right. of the point of that, I suppose, is suck it up. Your life isn't as bad as it could be. I don't get that sense from him that that's no. why he's doing it. 
No, right. And I mean, he definitely uses that story, but he doesn't beat you over the head with a cudgel no. about it, right? No. I yeah. did it, so you yeah. can do it. It's, no. it's, it's, it's not that kind of book. Right, it isn't. Th this book, it's written in a very self-help kind of way. And my worry about books like this, and I don't know what to do to replace them, is they, they don't seem very helpful when you need the help. They seem terribly inspiring when you're sitting from a position of relative ease and happiness, reading, going, oh, this is brilliant. The masses should adopt it. What was your experience? Oh, yeah. I, I very much feel that way. It's kind of like, for me anyway, it's kind of like mindfulness. It sounds really good when you're struggling, but if you don't practice it, if you don't integrate it into your life on a regular basis, even when things are going well, which is really hard to do for most of us, you're not going to be able to invoke it when you're in a crisis. Hmm. I do think things like gratitude lists and practices before bed, write down three things. You're th there's various ways to integrate this into day-to-day -day life that make it useful. But, but just reading through it once and think, oh, that was a great book. I'll, I'll do that. Mm. Probably not. There's there's no workbook associated with it. I don't think there's things at the end of the chapter that not really now learning now do. So you would kind of have to do that on your own as you yeah. read that book. Yeah. Well, Dan, I guess I curiously we are both recommending both of these books. I was just thinking about you know if somebody asked me. Who would you like to spend an hour with? Personally, I'd have a hard time trying to decide deciding which one. If I could only spend an hour with one of them, who, yeah. who would it be? That's a great way of putting it. Luckily, we don't have to because I really do think that these two books complement each other strangely because they are yes. so very different. Yes. But they speak to two very important aspects, the hope dimension that you mentioned earlier, and then really attending to the statistical nature of life and how being aware of that can improve our, our lives and well-being. Agreed. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Scott.